While the majority of Americans are deeply concerned about climate change, some are still unconvinced it is urgent. What's the best way to reach them? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. Many people view the climate change discussion as binary. You either accept it as fact or you don't. And those who don't are labeled climate deniers. But that could be a disservice. I don't ever call them deniers because I don't feel that's fair to them. To me, those people are victims. They are victims of a sustained, incredibly well-funded, incredibly disciplined misinformation campaign that's been going on for decades. The key to countering that misinformation isn't a flurry of facts and figures. The most powerful form of communication we have is what we relied on when we were still huddled around fires in the Stone Age, and that's telling stories. Today, Climate One presents the 10th annual Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication. Dr. Schneider was one of the founding fathers of climatology and a pioneer in climate communications. Each year, we present this award to a scientist who's done an extraordinary job of getting the climate message out to the public in a clear, compelling fashion. We recorded this program shortly before President Biden's inauguration. This year, we honor two world-class scholars of climate communication and public opinion. Tony Leiserwitz is Director and Senior Research Scientist at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and hosts the Climate Connections podcast. Ed Maybach is Director of the George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication. For over 10 years, the two have been asking Americans about their shifting attitudes toward climate disruption. Tony Leiserwitz explains how their work came to be called Global Warming Six Americas. We very quickly understood that, you know, Americans don't have a single viewpoint on climate change. And too many people then would divide the world up into believers and deniers. And that's way too simplistic. And in the course of our first surveys together, we identified what we call global warming six Americas, six different segments of the of the public that each respond to this issue in very different ways. So very quickly, uh, they range in a spectrum from a group we call the alarmed. Uh, that was about 26% of the country in our last national survey. These are people who are fully convinced it's happening, it's human-caused, it's urgent. They're eager to know what can they do to get involved. Then comes a group we call the concerned. That's also about 28%. These are people who also think it's happening in human-caused and serious, but often think of it still as kind of distant in time and space. So they would support action, but they don't yet see why it's urgent. Then comes a group that we call the cautious. It's about 20%. These are people who say, ah, I'm not really sure. Is it real? Is it not? Is it human? Is it natural? Is it serious or is it kind of overblown? They're still on the fence. Then comes a smaller group that we call the disengaged, about 7%. These are people who basically say, I don't know anything about this issue. I don't know what the causes or the consequences or solutions are. It's not like ideological barriers. They just don't really have even a, a basic understanding of the issue. Then a group we call the doubtful. This is at 11%. Uh, these are people who say, you know, I don't think it's real, but if it is, it's natural, just, you know, natural cycles, nothing that humans have anything to do with, nothing we can do much about, so they don't see it as much of a risk. And then last but not least is a group that we call the dismissive. And as of our last uh, study in April, that was 7% of the country. These are people who are firmly convinced it's not happening. It's not human caused. It's not a serious problem. And many of whom quite literally tell us that they're conspiracy theorists. They say it's a hoax, it's scientists making up data, it's a UN plot to take away American sovereignty, and many other such types of narratives. The last thing just to say, because they get way more attention than they deserve in terms of the proportion of the public, they're only 7%. 
but they're a really loud 7%. They're really vocal 7%. They have tended to dominate much of the public square, in particular because they're very well represented in the current White House and in the halls of Congress. So they have tended to actually intimidate much of the rest of the country into climate silence. And so one of the main messages that I think has come out of our research is not just understanding that these different audiences exist, and you need to meet them where they are, not where you are, where each of they are to help them engage this issue from their starting point, but also not letting the dismissive, who again are this tiny slice of the country, intimidate the rest of us into silence. I hear so many people talk about climate change and to say, if only the deniers would change their mind, the skeptics, then everything would open up. They definitely get a disproportionate amount of detention in the national conversation. Ed Maybach, where is the trend going? How are people moving from alarmed, concerned, dismissive, et cetera? Where's, where are the trend? Yeah, that's the really great part of the story. So five, six years ago, the alarm segment, the doubtful and the dismissive on the opposite end of the continuum, they were all about 12 or 13% of the public. Um, over the ensuing five or six years, there's been this enormous migration of people from the middle of the spectrum, mostly the, the cautious and the concerned, moving into the alarmed category. So as Tony said, now it's, you know, the alarmed are between a, a quarter and 30% of the public, which is, that makes them the largest single segment of, of Americans are as their name implies, they're alarmed about climate change. They understand we've got a problem and they're beginning to take actions to align with solutions. And conversely, on the other end of the continuum, the, the doubtful and dismissive segment, something happened that maybe we might not have anticipated. And that is those two segments contracted right now. Uh, so we, we've essentially seen a shrinkage of the uh, members of the dismissive segment by, you know, depending on, on which wave of the survey we're looking at, which wave of data, by at, at least a third, if not a half. And that's really remarkable. That's something that I, I personally wouldn't have predicted because once people have made up their mind, it's really difficult to change their minds. And most members of the, the that's kind of the, the sine qua non of being in the dismissive segment. They, they feel really convinced based on what they have heard, the trust, the, the trusted voices that they listened to, they were convinced that climate change was not a real serious problem. Ed Maybach, the term denier is very charged and thrown around a lot. When do you use the term climate denier? Yeah, thanks for that question, Greg. Um, I actually use it only in a very special circumstance. I, I use the term denier because it is so emotionally loaded and it, and it creates really strong reactions in people. So I reserve that term for people who are paid essentially to sow, to sow doubt, create uh, confusion, uh, put out misinformation about climate change. Those people, I think they really have earned the term denier. Um, conversely, members of the dismissive and the doubtful segment, I don't ever call them deniers because I don't feel that's fair to them. To me, those people are victims. They are victims of a, a, a sustained, incredibly well-funded, incredibly disciplined misinformation campaign that's been going on for decades. Um, and even uh, I would suggest that all of us are victims of that misinformation campaign. And when we look at our own thought processes, what, how we see the issue of climate change, we will un all undoubtedly find ideas that were suggested to us by essentially opponents of climate action, people who have used their, their fiscal and, and other resources to try to shape the way we think about this issue. 
Tony Leiserwitz, let's discuss the partisan dimensions of climate. What did you learn when you geolocated people and asked them about heat waves? So a study we did a number of years ago is, well, let me, I guess the broader point is that uh, to state the obvious perhaps is that climate change has become a very politically polarized issue. So, you know, as a general theme, Democrats are much more engaged with this issue and Republicans much less so. I, I should quickly say, though, there are plenty of Republicans who do think that climate change is real and a serious problem and, and in fact, are even rolling their sleeves up. So I don't mean to turn this into some sort of black and white thing. It's not the case. Um, but there is clearly a partisan divide. Um, and we did a study a number of years ago where we actually were interested, well, what happens when people actually start experiencing record-setting heat waves? And so what we were able to do is we were able to take our survey respondents and geolocate them. In other words, try to see what was the closest weather station to their where they actually live, and they took the survey. And then we could see, had they experienced, for instance, a record heat wave? And what we found very interestingly is that that uh, Democrats who had, in fact, we knew instrumentally had experienced a heat wave were more likely to say, yes, they had experienced a heat wave. Uh, Republicans were actually less likely to say that they had experienced a heat wave, even when the thermometers told us that they had. And that's just one of many, many kinds of things that we've discovered over the years of how sometimes for those few people who are really ideologically driven by this uh, issue, it can shape and color the way they interpret even their own direct experience. We know that political affiliation is the top predictor of how people are going to uh, you know, perceive climate. So what's going on there? Is it like tribal, like I, I believe what people around me believe, the, the sort of the, the social norms? Peel that back a little bit. Yeah, of course. So there's a famous phrase by a political scientist named Aaron Waldowski who once said, most people don't know much about most things. Okay. And that's all of us to be truthful, right? I mean, I happen to know a lot, lot about climate change because I've been in this field for over 30 years. But you ask me to assess the risks and hazards of, say, nanotechnology, I'm probably not that much better than just every 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 other person. So the fact is, is that we all live in this world of hazards and risks and potential threats all around us. So we all generally don't have the background to really investigate that, which means that we have to look to guided and trusted people to help us navigate this complex landscape. And so uh, one of the places that people look, other than, say, scientists, who they generally don't hear very much from, unfortunately, scientists don't have a huge megaphone, um, is that they look to their political leaders because the political leaders are the ones that have been talking about climate change. And we call this the effect of political elite cues, which is just a fancy way of saying that when leaders lead, followers follow. And of course, unfortunately, we've seen this playing out in a compressed, distilled, and very sped up fashion in this country right now around COVID and mask wearing, right? When the CDC first said uh, masks should be uh, worn, we actually were doing a survey right then on COVID, and we found a huge spike it, literally within 24 hours of the CDC saying that. That was before the president and many others started to, uh, from the Republican Party, started to denigrate the idea of wearing masks and even framing wearing a mask as somehow an insult to one's freedom. They politicized that issue. And now you've seen, of course, mask wearing dramatically decrease among their followers. So these things are playing out in real time all around us as we speak. Ed Maybach, for 21 years, you've lived next door to a woman who frequently describes herself as a Goldwater Republican. Tell us about the time she wandered into your kitchen while book club was meeting in your home. 
Okay, so I have to admit, when for the first 10 years, she would always remind me that she was a Goldwater Republican. And I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what that meant to her. I could tell it, it had something to do with the fact that she saw me as a San Francisco liberal, uh, probably a Nancy Pelosi liberal. Um, but once I understood what it meant, I realized, okay, she just feels a real need to keep my views at arm's length from her views because she felt threatened by them. And I, I didn't push her because she wasn't ready to, to engage in any meaningful conversation. She was clearly pushing me back as a neighbor in a friendly way saying, I don't wanna talk politics with you. I definitely don't wanna talk climate change with you. But she's a member of my wife's book club. And she came, she was in my home one night when I came home from work. I was in the kitchen having dinner by myself. She wandered in and I remembered that once she mentioned to me, she was a vegan. And I kind of put together the disconnect between veganism, at least my perception of veganism, and being a Goldwater Republican. So I asked her about it. I said, Nancy, why is it that, uh, you know, what's your motivation behind being a, a vegan? And, and she went into it at quite a large, at quite some depth. Um, and she was really passionate about the whole thing. And it, for her, it really came down to her love for and compassion for animals. She just couldn't conscience killing animals to feed herself. And after having the opportunity to actually have a real conversation with me, she started to ask me about climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and she really had a whole lot of questions. She really did want to know. But until we actually had a, a real meeting of the minds, a real trusting moment, there, there was no way she was going to let down her guard to actually explore any of that with me. And at the end of that conversation, which probably lasted 30 or 40 minutes, she essentially summarized. Uh, ended the conversation by saying, well, I probably got to get back to the book conversation, but thank you for that. that. I really feel like I understand climate change for the first time. Wow, what a moment. And, and, and having known the person for 10 years, it, you know, I think there's some sort of transferable principles there about listening first. You say that, uh, Ed, that trying to persuade people to change their mind is a fool's errand and only engage when invited. So what are some sort of principles from that moment that other people could uh, apply in their lives about when to engage, when invited, those sorts of things. Well, I have to say the first, one of the first principles of communication is ask questions, right? Because <laughs> communication is supposed to be a dialogue, not a monologue. Um, and I can't think of a single instance where I've ever succeeded to persuade anybody of anything unless they were really interested. They wanted to know what I had to say and, and considered what I had to say in their in their decision making process. So unless the, the door is open, um, don't bother. Uh, it, it just it's as it, which connects to why I was so surprised, as I said a moment ago, so surprised that we've seen this contraction among the, the number of the dismissive segment. Um, so clearly they are, many of them are finding ways to have conversations with people who know the truth, who might not know much of many of the facts, but at least have the, the correct sense that, wow, climate change is a real problem. Um, as Tony suggested earlier, it's a problem that more and more Americans are coming to see, uh, co coming home to roost in their backyard and they're recognizing it as such. And so perhaps the reason why the dismissive segment is shrinking in size is because out there in America across the, you know, the back fence or, or at the, uh, you know, on, on people's stoop, they're having conversations whereby they're actually, people are actually asking questions and listening to one another's responses. Tony, 
Psychologist Paul Slovic was your primary dissertation advisor and a pioneer in understanding how humans perceive risk. In one study, his research showed of people a photo of a seven-year-old girl dying of starvation and asked for a donation to help her. He then showed two children and then larger groups. He found that humans are less likely to respond emotionally as the number of victims increases. He said, statistics are human beings with the tears dried off. He recently told the Washington Post, sometimes the more who die, the less we care. What does that mean for the human response to COVID and climate? Yeah, so Paul, did. Uh, he's done the whole series of very fundamental pieces of work, and I encourage all listeners to go check out his, uh, his body of work. But this one in particular, I mean, there's a famous phrase that's long been attributed to Stalin, that the death of a single individual is a tragedy, but the death of a million is a statistic, okay? That as human beings, we're just not well built to understand and really understand the meaning of these large numbers that each one of which, of course, is an individual story. You know, the hundreds of thousands of people who have died of COVID in this country in just the past nine months, I can say that, but you can't really understand that that is not just the loss of an entire life, but the ripple effects that has had in tearing apart the fabric of families and communities and little leagues and, you know, workplaces and so on and so forth. I mean, Annie Dillard, the wonderful writer, once said, you know, this is all really easy. Just take yourself, all of your trials, your tribulations, your joys, your sorrows, your angers, and so on, and multiply it times seven and a half billion if you want to understand the world, right? It's easy. Of course, it's not easy, right? We can't, we just can't compute it in that way. So why that then translates to climate change is because so much of climate discourse has been at this very abstract numerical level in no small part, because the only way we know about climate change is that it came out of the scientific community, which talks in the language of numbers and abstraction. And in fact, climate change itself is an abstraction. You cannot directly experience global climate change by yourself, right? You literally can't. You can experience specific impacts, but you cannot experience what's going on around the entire world, in the ice, in the oceans, in the biosphere, in the atmosphere. That only happens, we only know about it because scientists have been collecting hundreds of thousands of measurements all over the world for decades, okay? That's how we can we understand what climate change is. Um, so that's very difficult in itself to translate into people's you know, deep into their bones to touch not just their heads, but their hearts and ultimately affect what they do with their hands. Um, and that, I think, has been one of the real challenges for climate change that fortunately, through research that Ed and I and many of our colleagues around the country have been doing, is beginning to find that one of the ways that you do that is that you tell stories for all of our great innovations. I mean, we are living in the most technological age and we are talking to each other by Zoom right now and over the radio waves and on television and social media. I mean, these incredible inventions. And yet still the most powerful form of communication we have is what we relied on when we were still huddled around fires in the Stone Age. And that's telling stories, telling and, and, and sharing experiences from one person to the next. Don't eat that berry. Someone in our tribe ate that berry and died. You don't want to do that, okay? And through that simple story, you have just changed somebody's life. You probably saved their life, okay? So story is absolutely crucial to our being able to understand this. And that ultimately, not saying this is about polar bears or abstract future generations, but us, okay? It's affecting people 
right here, right now. It's not just in our backyards anymore. It's not even in the front yard. It's in the basement. So how do you help people understand that? And one of the most powerful ways to communicate that is through story. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate change and communication. Coming up, the cost of a just transition and giving credit where credit is due. I think one of the first things we need to do with workers in the fossil fuel industry, and I mean the workers, not necessarily the CEOs, is just to say thank you. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking with Tony Leiserwitz of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and Ed Mayback of the George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication. We recorded this conversation just before President Biden's inauguration. Before the break, we were talking about the power of storytelling and raising and sharing climate awareness. Still, starting those conversations can be difficult. Climate can be depressing, and most people would rather just avoid it. But Tony Leiserwitz says that cynicism can be even more destructive than depression. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll just say personally, I, look, I've been doing this work for 30 years, and I've been watching this problem get worse and worse for 30 years. We, the science has been clear for literally a generation plus of what was going to happen. We filled in a lot of the details. I mean, there's still need for more science, of course, climate science. But the broad outlines were very clear decades ago. And, you know, it's tough to work in this field and to work on this topic when you see everything that was projected uh, when I was just a young man coming to fruition and in sometimes the most personal ways. I mean, I had a, a eureka moment when I was in Aspen uh, one day after one of these really uh, big meetings where I was just up in the mountains, uh, trying to relax. And suddenly it hit me that what I had been learning about, for instance, sea level rise, you know, wiping entire island nations off the map was going to happen right there in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, where the warming temperatures are going to wipe the, some of my favorite ecosystems, the tundra zone, these incredibly tough yet fragile ecosystems right off the top of these mountains. And moreover, it was going to affect the entire landscape and ecosystem around there. And now when I've gone back to Colorado, I see it. The the pine bark beetle and the fires and the droughts and so on. It, it, it's I'm living exactly what we were talking about uh, 20 years uh, earlier. So I find that look, if you're in this field, you're probably oscillating from you know despair to hope and back and forth, and sometimes within the space of just a couple minutes. So how do you how do you cope with that grief when you're in those down cycles? Do you try to push it away? Because I think some people that I, you and I, I learned from some of the same psychologists that pushing away that grief only makes it grow. But it's it's not it's hard to kind of succumb to it because we're afraid it's going to swallow us up. Absolutely, I think it's the other it's one of the other forms of climate denial is not truly letting yourself as best you can feel and you use the word grok to really understand in your bones what is happening and what's at risk um, and, uh, and what we're losing, literally while we're speaking here right now. I think it's really important to embrace that, to dig deep into it and let yourself fully feel it and then turn that, uh, that sadness, that despair, that anger into action. That's the best possible uh, way to deal with that. What worries me, back to your prior question, is the people that have, and I think we live in an in a increasingly cynical age, and I find that very destructive. Because if you adopt the position of the cynic, 
um, then suddenly action becomes impossible. Like nothing's ever going to change because politicians suck, right? Uh, nothing's ever going to change because companies won't ever change. Uh, to quote Henry Ford, uh, he once said, uh, those who think they can and those who think they can't are both right. If you don't believe you can make a difference, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you won't even try. And I would much rather take that that fear, that anger, that despair, and turn it into something constructive and say, I at least did everything I could to make a difference. Ed Maybach, do you allow yourself to totally uh, give in to the grief and, I don't know, curl up in a ball in a fetal position on the floor sometimes? Right. I came to this work from the field of public health. I had worked on some really difficult problems, difficult both in terms of public health and in terms of the emotions they bring up, like the HIV epidemic in, in the, the late 1980s, for example. That was a really tough problem. And uh, But when I, once I finally really had connected the implications of climate change to public health and human well-being, I, I really I could barely bring myself to think about it. Uh, it was, it made me so emotional. Um, I don't know, the grief was what I was experiencing. I'm not sure that I had uh, given in to the belief that there that this was not uh, a problem, that, that this was a problem we could manage. Um, but it was, it did raise a lot of negative feelings. And pretty quickly, I learned how to manage that in a really productive way. I'd sort of lock it into a metal box and I'd only open it up when I felt the need to, uh, to re-motivate myself. But instead, I would focus on the work that Tony and I were doing and that I was doing with other people. And I would make that my benchmark of progress because this is a problem that, that I'm going to be working on for the rest of my life. I'm quite sure Tony's going to be working on it for the rest of his life. Um, it's entirely possible that our children and our grandchildren will be working on it for the uh, duration of their lives. This is a problem for the long term. But in order to manage to get up each day and give it our best, the way I manage that is by looking at the progress that we are making in our in our work, um, and that is a very hopeful um, way to to manage the sort of the, all the difficult emotions and channel them into real motivation for for getting up, doing our best. We're recording this episode of Climate One with a live stream with a live online audience, and we have one question from Sally Bingham asks, "Who are the deniers spreading the misinformation?" Ed Maybach, you know that seven percent you said that have this outsized influence. Do we know about their motivations? Is it money? Is it power spreading this misinformation? It's complicated. There's no there's no simple answer to that question. But but I think it began with being about money. It began with the fossil fuel industry wanting to protect their business interests. Um, and they are incredibly smart in the way they have gone about protecting those business interests, including buying friends, buying friends in think tanks, buying friends in elected uh, in politics. Um, and so while those friends aren't necessarily defending the financial interests, at least they don't see themselves as defending the financial interests of, of the fossil fuel industry as their primary reason for contesting the, the reality or the seriousness of climate change, people are incredibly capable of lying to themselves, of persuading themselves. So in answer to Sally's question, it, you know, it really does. There's all kinds of different layers of human psychology that are built on the most fundamental layer of, of economics, the economics of the fossil fuel industry, which until now has absolutely seen this climate change and climate responding to climate change as an existential threat to their industry. 
I think we're beginning to see some of the fossil fuel companies as realizing they have the capability of actually evolving what business they're in, away from being a fossil fuel company and towards being an energy company. And when, once you decide we're gonna become an energy company, the best energy that can be produced, the best energy that we can produce, it creates a pathway for them to, to essentially renounce all of this ridiculous um, climate denial that they have supported for so long and embrace the business opportunities of, of the clean energy revolution. Tony Leiser has a question from a listener. Marty asks, is there any way to introduce some fundamental climate science into K-12 education? So tell us, what do people, students learn about the basics of climate around the country? Yeah, such a great question. So, uh, so first of all, let me just say that we have actually asked Americans about this, and they overwhelmingly, and I'm talking Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, support the teaching of uh, climate change and the causes and the consequences and solutions to our kids in K-12. So it is actually one of those areas where there's a, a very large social consensus that that would be a good thing. Um, more specifically, I mean, currently, I think it's very patchy. Uh, there are certain parts of the country that are actually doing a pretty good job. They've incorporated climate change into not just science classes, but even into English classes and history classes and into the humanities. Um, so I think you will find some bright spots. But by and large, it's important to remember that the American education system is even more fragmented than our political system, right? Uh, we, there is no, like, we have a national education uh, department, but it does not control national education, not by a long shot, because education is still predominantly in the hands of local school boards, um, local PTAs, uh, and so on. Now, on the one hand, you can, you know, tear your hair out because it means that, that as a result, teaching of climate change can be so different in different parts of the country, though that's now changing because there is now a national science standards, which now for the first time includes climate change. So this will change uh, over over the uh, coming years. And there's a really big effort right now by climate educators to get much better organized. And they're hoping in the next administration to really make a, a, a concerted push. And I think that's one of the areas where we all should be looking to because that's that's the deep fundamental cultural level change that is going to be needed for the long term. Um, but I would also just say this is, for all that fragmentation, it's also an incredible opportunity for everyday Americans to actually get involved and make a difference. Because while it may seem very difficult for most of us sitting at home to think, how am I going to convince the president to do something? It's much easier to say, I can just go show up at the local school board meeting. I can talk to my teachers, my kids' teachers. I can make a difference in my school district. And the more that happens, the more the entire system starts to change because there'll be more demand for textbooks, there'll be more demand for teaching and training, and it just starts to snowball uh, through throughout the country. So don't underestimate your political power, even if it's at the local area. You Changing the ways climate change is taught in the schools has ripple effects way beyond your own kids. And Maybach, we have a question from a listener to this live stream recording of Climate One. Bob Ward asks, what level of priority should the incoming Biden administration give to a just transition to a zero emissions economy such that workers in high carbon industries are retrained and redeployed? And that term just transition, we're here three white guys talking about this, often is termed as you know people of color who've been harmed by the fossil fuel economy. Yeah, well, fortunately, they're 
they're according a just transition, a very high priority. The Biden administration's four top priorities are, are COVID, economic recovery, uh, racial equality, equity is the way they frame it, and climate change. And they recognize and explicitly connect those four challenges, those four priorities. And they're smart to do so because in fact, the way in which we're going to make progress on all four is to link the four together. In Tony's and I, my research, we've actually identified that um, members of the public also feel really strongly about this point of a just transition. We cannot leave individuals and communities behind who have helped drive the economic engine of America to get us to this point, even if we absolutely need them to change the way they earn a livelihood now. So this notion of a just transition is not something that that pointy headed academics or think tank personnel have have dreamed up. It's something that actually is a pretty deeply held value in America and among Americans that we need to treat people fairly. And it's fair and square to make sure that those people, the people who've earned their livelihood, extracting and refining fossil fuels, that those people actually have a, a good livelihood going forward. Tony Larzowitz, the polling industry has taken some lumps recently after uh, some misses in, in election cycles. And uh, it, it's one thing to ask people like what they support in the future. Do you support wind or solar, renewables, et cetera, if there's no personal cost or consequence? So what happens when you ask people, how much are you willing to pay for you know, a transition away from fossil fuels where, where people actually have some skin in the game or there's actually some personal consequence? How does that shape their, their responses? Yeah, well, I'll go back to where we started this conversation, and that is that there is no single answer to that because there are different types of people. So what we have found consistently is that, for example, the alarmed, they're actually very willing to to spend like far more money on solving this problem than actually is going to cost. And, I, and then let's take a quick aside to recognize that one of the fundamental solutions here is shifting from the burning of fossil fuels, a 19th century technology, which still is digging stuff out of the ground and setting it on fire to a 21st century energy system, which is harnessing the energy that is swirling around us at all times from the sun, from the wind, from the tides, from the heat in the ground, okay? Inexhaustible, renewable forever, and here's the key part, now cheaper than fossil fuels. That is a radically new situation, and it is a story, it is a narrative, it's a communication opportunity because most Americans don't yet understand that. They still think they, they're totally on board for, climate, for clean energy, by the way. Again, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives. Um, but they still think that it's still, you know, at least 10, 20 years away. And that's just not the case anymore. Uh, wind and solar, for example, are already cheaper than building a brand new uh, natural gas plant, let alone operating a coal-fired power plant all across the country and, in fact, around the world. So this isn't any longer a question of you need to eat your vegetables. This is more like you get everything that you want, a healthier, cleaner environment, more jobs, uh, and you're going to pay less for your electricity. I mean, I got to say, what's not to like there? Okay. So uh, that's a story that most people don't yet fully understand. And that's, I think, going to be a critical part of the next couple of years. Because again, back to what Ed was just saying, it's so important that we also have this economic recovery because we are in the worst circumstances now economically since the Great Depression. And what was the fastest growing sector of the economy before COVID? The clean energy industry. Okay. This is a gargantuan, historic, like world shattering size 
transition. All the major transitions in human civilizational history have come through major advances in energy use, like going from using human muscle to the to the harnessing of animal power, to harnessing fire, <laughs> to, of course, far, harnessing fossil fuels, because Ed's right. In fact, let me just quickly say, I think one of the first things we need to do with workers in the fossil fuel industry, and I mean the workers, not necessarily the CEOs, is just to say thank you. These are people who literally put their bodies on the line. And thinking of coal miners who would go in day after day and do some of the most dangerous, dirty, and personally killing like black lung disease kinds of jobs on behalf of all of us. They helped us create modern civilization. Now it's time to transition away from that dirty source of fuel, which has all these terrible consequences that we didn't fully understand when we started, but now we do. So let's start by just saying thank you. You are not the enemy, but we are going to be here as a society to help you make that transition with us. No, no man, no woman left behind. Um, I think that's just a different way of framing these issues that unfortunately I think we sometimes lose because people get so sucked into how do I you know, it's this punch-counterpunch uh, uh, kind of dynamic. You're listening to a conversation about changing public perception of the climate crisis. This is Climate One. Coming up, how choosing the right messenger can reach a broader audience. In Tony's and my very first survey, we learned something really surprising, which was that the public trusts TV weathercasters as a source of information about global warming. talking with this year's recipients of the Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Communication, Ed Maybach of George Mason University and Tony Leiserwitz of Yale. We're all familiar with the images that dominate climate journalism, shrinking glaciers, melting ice flows, and starving polar bears. But as Leiserwitz and Maybach found, these kinds of photos may not be delivering the most effective message. So one of the, my favorite questions that we've asked on these surveys over many, many years is, what's the first thought or image that comes to mind when you hear the words global warming? Uh, and what often comes to many people's minds, in fact, it's very consistently at the top, is images of melting ice. Sea ice retreating on the Arctic Ocean, ice shells breaking off of Antarctica, melting glaciers around the world. And that's on the one hand, that's a useful thing because it does help uh, reinforce the sense that this is real, because we all know from embodied experience, if you take a glass of, out, of ice outside on a hot summer day, what happens? The ice melts, right? I didn't have to teach you any physics, or any atmospheric chemistry. You understand in, in your, from your own experience exactly what warming temperatures does. So it's good at in reinforcing that it's real. The problem is, how many of us live next to a melting glacier, or in Antarctica, or along the shores of the Arctic Ocean? Almost nobody. Okay? And those are exactly the images that have been shown to us in the context of reporting on climate change over and over and over and over and over again. It's, I can't tell you how many times there have been articles, great articles written by excellent science journalists describing the latest finding or an impact and could have nothing to do with melting ice at all. And the editor says, hey, great article, reporter. Hey, photo editor, get me a picture for climate change. And they slap a picture of a, of a melting iceberg on it, maybe with a polar bear. Okay, how many times have you seen that that damn image uh, associated with the words global warming? Um, so unfortunately, those images are sometimes even more powerful than the words we read. 
And so we really have to be more careful, and it gets back to what I said before, of how important it is to put a human face on that, because most of those pictures of melting ice don't include a human being in those pictures at all. And this is ultimately about us. Ed Maybach, tell us about Ed Gandy and why he was a pioneer in climate communications. Yeah, Jim Gandy is his name. Uh, 10, 11 years ago now, actually, I put out a call to TV weathercasters around the country, and I asked for a volunteer, somebody who would work with me and my team to report on the local impacts of climate change in their community. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because, um, as, as we've Tony and I have both said, most members of the public accept the reality of climate change even 10 years ago, but they see it as, a, they tended to see it as a distant problem, distant in space, time, and species. We, in Tony's and my very first survey, we learned something really surprising, which was that the public trusts TV weathercasters as a source of information about global warming. We followed that up with a survey of weathercasters, and we wanted to know, well, would you be interested in, in teaching people about how global warming is changing conditions in your community? And we learned that about half of America's weathercasters said, yeah, I'd love to do that, but there are a whole bunch of reasons why I can't. So when I put out that call and Jim Gandy responded to that call, I wanted to work with one weathercaster to see if we couldn't solve those problems, overcome those barriers that were stopping him from educating his viewers about climate change. Jim, on, at the time, he's now retired. At the time, he was the chief meteorologist at WLTX in um, Columbia, South Carolina. I had other weathercasters volunteer from much more liberal or, or mixed media markets, but I chose Jim because he was really brave to, to want to talk about climate change on air in a really deep red media market like Columbia, South Carolina, and he had the support of his general manager and, and his news director to do so. You know, the news business is an economic business. They have to earn viewers, keep viewer loyalty if they want to keep the revenues coming into the station. So they did something really hard um, and they did it beautifully. Jim became really the first American TV weathercaster who was consistently going on air talking about human caused climate change and teaching his viewers about how it's changing conditions in their backyards. And they were rewarded for it. And this is particularly remarkable because it spread and, and meteorologists, weather men and women, were some of the most strident, um, I don't want to say deniers, but I, I guess skeptics, because they thought they, I don't know, they knew better or they, they, they knew the weather, right? And so they were some of the uh, most skeptical people. And, you know, they're one of the few people in this country that, that Republicans, conservatives and liberals watch. They watch local sports, local weather. It's one of the few things we have in common in this country anymore. Yeah, that 10 years ago, when we first started this project, weathercasters on average were more skeptical of climate change than, than was the public. And, and, and I mean considerably more skeptical. Um, but over the next, uh, over the past 10 years, they have completely changed as a community. They are now almost to a person. They are on board accepting the reality of human-caused climate change. And as of today, 
almost half of TV weathercasters in America are part of the program that Jim Gandy helped us start. We call it the Climate Matters Program. And now, uh, last numbers I saw, we were almost at 1,000 weathercasters who were participating in this program, which really means over the course of 10 years, that community has gone from being skeptical to not only being accepting, but rolling up their sleeves and getting involved in doing what they can do to make sure that people in their community really understand what, what the, what's happening in their community and, and to a very real degree, understanding what their options are for responding to it. As we, as we wrap up here, we've been talking a lot about the motivations, the perceptions of risk, uh, the social psychological dimensions, the how the problem is known. People accept the problem is known. The solutions are available. Maybe that solutions are not as well communicated to people. Tony Leisowitz, talk about personal agency. What is it and how can I get some? Yes. Well, it goes back to what I said before about stories. So uh, another example of that is uh, in terms of the implementation of the research insights that Ed and I have gathered is another program called Yale Climate Connections. And this is a, a national radio program that we sponsor. It's a brand new climate story every day that plays on over 650 stations across the United States. And it really is taking that idea of how do I hear about real people from every walk of life telling in their own voice, in their own uh, first-person narratives, here's how climate change is affecting me as a mother, as a rancher, as a fisherman, as a restaurateur, as, you know, as a doctor, as a nurse. Um, and then even more importantly, the stories of people who are saying, I'm not going to stand on the sidelines and watch the world burn. I'm going to do what I can to get involved, roll up my sleeves, and make a difference within my sphere of influence. And I will just say, as somebody who's been in this field for 30 plus years, I had no idea of the amount of incredible, creative, innovative, gritty things that people, Democrats and Republicans, by the way, uh, are doing all over this country to help address this problem. And so back to your question about how do you deal with despair, I will say that Climate Connections is one of the best ways I know of to deal with despair because I'm so inspired by the stories that we're able to bring to the, a national audience about what all kinds of Americans are doing to help be part of the solution. And Ed, Ed Maybach, you come out of public health. How do you say to someone climate could affect their personal health in their lifetime? Really bring it home, climate and personal health. So before I answer the question directly, let me say that Tony and I have learned over the years that when people do finally understand that climate change is personally relevant to them, they tend to um, connect it to them to things around them as opposed to them themselves. So, mm -hmm. for example, when we ask people who tell us that they have personally experienced global warming, we ask them how. How have you experienced it? And people tend to give answers like here in the Washington area, um, I see my daffodils come up earlier in the spring, or I see the leaves changing uh, later in the, in, in the fall. Um, so th they tend to talk their observations about the ways in which the climate is changing around them. It doesn't touch their lives directly. At least people aren't aware of that. But but in reality, it is touching their lives directly. We know that the people who are doing research on the ways in which climate change is, is harming human health, they've actually identified eight different categories of ways in, in which we are being harmed. The most dramatic of which is through dangerous weather. Climate, climate change is making our weather more dangerous. Um, 
bigger storms, more more serious, hotter and, and more protracted heat waves. And in both of those instances, people get hurt or they die. Um, Another way in which the climate, uh, changing climate is harming our health is the fact that our ecosystems are being disrupted, which creates opportunities for what we in public health call vectors, mosquitoes, ticks, rodents, to spread, to go into new places and to carry new diseases with them into new places. So these are two of the, the are three of the many ways in which climate change is harming human health. And what Tony and I have learned is that when you take the time to explain to people that, in fact, climate change is causing health harm and equally of equal importance, that climate solutions are good for our health, climate solutions are health solutions, it creates an opportunity for people to recognize that their real skin in the game is quite literally their skin. Um, and that's a really important realization because it takes people to a deeper level of understanding about what's really at, at risk and a deeper level of understanding about the point Tony made earlier, which is, wow, we can have a, a twofer here. We can do the right thing for our climate. And in doing so, we'll get cleaner air if, as we clean up our fuel supplies, We'll get cleaner air, cleaner water, and better health. And we don't have to wait for those benefits. Those benefits occur almost instantaneously to the extent to which we clean up our fuel supplies. And they also happen locally. So if me and my neighbors decide to become advocates to close down the fossil, the uh, coal power plant in our, uh, in our county, we benefit immediately. We get cleaner air, cleaner water, and better health. We don't have to wait for the benefits of stabilizing our climate. So this whole notion of for people who are, whose minds are open, to give them this whole new narrative, to share with them this whole narrative, which is entirely science-based, the evidence is perfectly clear, but most people have never heard that evidence. But when we, we know that when we do share that with them, it has real value. And it has value to people across the political continuum, which is a particularly helpful uh, finding from our research because it's one of those conversations that conservative Americans are really interested in having. They have, just like most of their liberal counterparts, they haven't heard about this. And sometimes they're skeptical about the climate benefits, but they are rarely skeptical about the health benefits of cleaning up our energy supplies. We've been talking about bringing home the climate message with this year's recipients of the Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Communication. Ed Maybach is director of the George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication. And Tony Leiserwitz is director and senior research scientist at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Leiserwitz is the host of the Yale Climate Connections podcast. The Schneider Award from Climate One is generously underwritten by Tom Burns, Nora Machado, and Mike Haas. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.